TLC, what's going on, guys? So good to see you this morning. Um, so, got a question for you. Have you ever done something that you knew you weren't supposed to do, and so then you tried to, like, cover it up? Uh, when I was growing up, uh, my family did not have lots of money. Uh, we were not, like... Uh, in poverty, but you could see it from my front porch, if you know what I mean. And uh, that simply meant that uh, birthdays and Christmases, like that's like if you're going to get a gift, that was the time, all right? You weren't getting some random gift from something that was just like, what well, wasn't going to happen. You had to earn your own money if you wanted to buy stuff. Now, when I was a little kid, uh, I had a couple different ventures, a uh, lemonade stand in the summertime. Uh, one time, my sister and I actually made a paper airplane stand, trying to sell paper airplanes. Did not go very well. Uh, also would try to shovel driveways in the winter, earn a couple bucks. But I got my first real job the summer between my sixth grade and seventh grade year. I became a paper boy for the Flint Journal. Yeah, look at that right there. Uh, I don't know if you can tell, but I had the frosted tips. <laughs> oh, that jacket is a St. John starter jacket, which I purchased with my paper route money, I'll have you know. Uh, having a paper route, though, was no joke. The way that they did it back in the 80s, and I'm sure before that, uh, I literally don't know how they could get away with this, okay? This is what the Flint Journal would do. The Flint Journal would uh, literally bring to my curb a stack of papers, okay, in a bundle, and a stack of ads uh, next to it, and they would charge me as a sixth grader for the paper. And they would charge me for the rubber bands to band them up and the plastic bags when I had to put them in for rainy days or snowy days. And then I had to walk around to all of the customers on my paper route and I had to collect the money. So I would walk around with a little blue book that had everybody's names, addresses, and telephone numbers written in there. And I would have to like mark off whether they had paid me that month, uh, whether they were in all uh, seven days or just a weekend's uh, paper. And then I would collect that money and then I would have to pay my bill to the Flint Journal. If somebody didn't pay me, all right, guess who got stiffed? Me, not the Flint Journal, okay? Now, papers would come and they didn't have, a, I'm like, how do they not have machines that could do this? They, they had to, but they didn't care. They just made us do it. We had to put the advertisements in each paper before, so, uh, you'd take the papers, I'd usually bring them inside, uh, we had like a little foyer kind of area right inside the door in our home, and stairs right there that went up to my bedroom, okay? So I'd sit on those stairs, and I would take each paper, and I would take each ad, and I'd put it inside, roll it up, put a rubber band on it, put it in my paper bag, and then I walked uh, two blocks to start my paper route, and then I'd walk about another six blocks, okay? My paper bag would often weigh 30, 40 pounds. On Sundays, there might be multiple ads that you had to put in, each one by hand, two, three different ads, put them in, roll it up, walk it out. It was so heavy that I couldn't even usually do the entire route in one, so I'd have to like kind of loop through one, come back, fill up my bag again, and you had to have those things out early in the morning on Sundays. 
rain, snow, you're sick, you got homework, don't matter. That paper had better be there every single day in the afternoon right after school. I'd just start getting phone calls. My bus would be late. I'd be getting phone calls like, hey, my paper's not here yet. I'm like, hold up. I'm in sixth grade, okay? <laughs> like, give your boy a break, all right? Now, uh, I started doing the math on what I was actually being paid for this, okay? About $24 a week. So over a month, that was about 96 bucks. And I averaged about 50 hours a week to do my paper route. Every single day you had to do the papers. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday morning, get up butt early when you're in seventh grade, the worst thing ever. Sunday morning before church, I'm up before the sun even gets up. All right, when God himself doesn't want to wake up yet, you know, you shouldn't be up yet either. All right, but I'm out there hustling, hustling. Now, I averaged about $1.92 an hour, which was below minimum wage at the time. But it was the only job that you could get when you're 11 years old, all right? When I turned 14, then I could actually get a real job working at like McDonald's, which I did. Yeah, Golden Arches. But up until that time, if I wanted something, I had to earn some money for it. Paper out was the best way. So I can't get too mad at the paper for doing what they did, although I still feel like they broke all kinds of child labor laws. Uh, the worst part, though, was not everything that I just described. The worst part was Wednesdays. You see, on Wednesdays, they not only dropped off the advertisements and the papers, they also dropped off what were called ad packs. The ad packs were basically all of the advertisements from the past week that you also had to bundle up and put a rubber band on, and you had to carry those along with the normal Wednesday paper and deliver the ad pack to everybody on your route that did not receive a paper. The people that did not receive a paper did not pay. The Flint Journal did not pay me to deliver the ad packs. I have no idea how they could get away with making us walk around to all the people that weren't getting a paper and still deliver ad packs to them every single week. All right? It was a hustle. But you can't out-hustle a hustler. So there was the occasional Wednesday when, you know, it's, um, it's really cold. And you have to know something about my house. Up those stairs, right inside the front door, to the right was my bedroom. The back of my bedroom, there was a closet. In the very back of my closet, there was another small little sliding door that led to an attic that was very small and short and nothing but insulation and ceiling joists in there. And we never went in there. Nobody ever looked at anything in there. And so one Wednesday, I thought, do they really need their ad packs? It's rainy. It's cold, and so I looked around, and none of my brothers and sisters were there, and my parents weren't there, and so I grabbed that pile of ad packs, and I ran up to my room, and I went inside and opened up the closet and went to the back back of the closet, and I hid them deep in a corner where it was dark. I had my paper route for three years, and surprisingly, there were a lot of cold, rainy Wednesdays. 
over that three years. But when I turned 14, I was able to get a real job, and so I quit my paper route and uh, started working for the Mickey D's. It had been probably a year had gone by between my, my paper route and, and uh, when, I had, when I had stopped, I guess, and uh, my folks were putting an addition on the house. And uh, my dad uh, was on a ladder matching some drywall with the new ceiling into the existing ceiling in our kitchen which also happened to be right underneath the back back of my closet. Uh, all of a sudden, I heard my dad scream, Ah! And, and then I heard him yell, Torin Christopher Scott! It was like one of those ones where you're like, you know you're in trouble, okay? But I didn't know why I was in trouble. All right, I'm like, man, I've been good. I ain't done nothing to my brothers and sisters. Like, why is dad calling my name like this? I'm about to die, and I don't even know why. Like, where's the, do I get a jury? Like, what's going, so I walk in, okay, and my dad is literally on the ladder, and there is a big chunk of ad packs and a big chunk of the ceiling that has fallen down on his head. He can't get off the ladder because if he moves, the whole ceiling's about to come down. My mom is standing there, okay? By the time I get in there, she knows I'm about to die too. She's looking at me, fire in her eyes, her lips are pursed, and she says, be sure your sins will find you out, young man. <laughs> now, I, I was I, like, and my dad at this point in his life, uh, he had really black hair and he had it permed, and, which is like a, you know, a, a bad look anyway. But it's even worse when you've got... Uh, uh, dust from years and years of ad packs that have just come down in your sweet perm. So uh, right at that moment, though, my grandparents actually were uh, coming from Chicago to visit us that weekend, and they happened to ring the doorbell right then. And that's the only reason that, I, that I'm still alive today, uh, because my grandparents came at that time. Uh, look, I'd like you to um, grab your Bibles and open up to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. We're about to look at a story. Um, that's connected to last week's message. Last week was Joshua 6, uh, where we actually learned about how God had given Jericho to Israel, what God had done, and, and, and how he simply asked Israel to obey what he had called them to do. Okay, Joshua's only, only thing they needed to do in battle was to obey God. And God did this miraculous thing. Uh, now we have kind of the, the second part to that story. Uh, it starts off a little bit strange because it says that there's a guy, Achan, who uh, does something he's not supposed to do. And he takes some of the things that he wasn't supposed to take from Jericho, and he hides them in his tent. And he winds up um, then eventually getting caught. And when he's caught, um, he and his entire household, they, they stone them to death. It, pretty brutal, to be honest. But... The reason is, is because he had broken the covenant that God had made with Israel. And because he had done that, when Israel goes to conquer the next city, they instead get destroyed, routed. 36 men die because of Achan's disobedience and his household. Now, once Achan has been taken care of and he is punished, literally with his life for the lives of the 36 men that were killed, uh, God then gives Ai, the city, uh, to Israel. God does it. We need to kind of understand, though, what's going on to know what the truth of this passage, what this text is trying to convey to us today. So let's actually start in verse 27 of chapter 6, the last verse. 
It says, so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So Yahweh's anger burned against Israel. Now maybe like, what in the world are devoted things? What, what is he talking about here? Why is God mad at him for taking whatever these devoted things are? Well, to understand, we got to jump back, back to chapter 6. We didn't actually read these verses last week, but it's good for us just to be reminded of them. Verse 17, it says, The city, this is chapter 6, verse 17, The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So God basically says, look, I'm going to do this work. I'm going to give you this land, right? Remember, we learned the whole world is God's. It's his to do what he wants with it. Everything in it, the gold, the silver, the iron, the bronze, precious metal, precious stones, whatever, all of that is God's. And so God says to Israel, look, I'm giving you this land. I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you. I told you I was 500 years ago with Abraham. I'm doing it now. But this first city that I'm going to win the battle for you, you are to take those devoted things, those precious metals, and you are not to keep them for yourself. You are to get them and put them in my treasury, God says. I want them for my use. And Achan disobeys. Let's keep reading verse 2 of chapter 7. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Aven, to east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it. Do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. Which I think, thirty-six seems like a pretty specific number to say about thirty-six, but about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of Yahweh, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. That's a sign of uh, mourning. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? Joshua comes and is devastated by what's just happened. I mean, they've just come off this amazing uh, battle that God has won for them at Jericho. They're anticipating uh, this small city being not that big of a deal, and so they only send up a, a couple thousand men. Uh, to it, to take it, and they get their tails kicked. Pushed all the way back, 36 men die. 
And it's interesting that Joshua, who's seen God's faithfulness time and time and time and time and time again, still assumes that God must not be holding up his end of the bargain. Now, I think that happens to us a lot, too. We've maybe made some choices that weren't the best choices. And sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years later, we experience some of the consequences. And we're like, God, where are you? What are you doing? Now, not every single bad thing that happens to us is because of our own sin, a judgment from God. Uh, Jesus was really clear about this in the New Testament. It was a time that there was a blind man uh, who was there on the road, and, and his disciples said, uh, Jesus, why, why is this man blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? And Jesus says, neither. It was actually so that God's glory could be shown, and he heals him. And so sometimes when bad things happen to us, it's not because of sin in our lives, or it's because we live in a world that is fallen and broken. But sometimes it's because there's stuff that we're holding on to. And that's what's happening here in the story. God is not able to lie or fail. God cannot be unfaithful. God doesn't like to be our scapegoat. Okay, Even when we don't understand or see the big picture. This is kind of a theme in Joshua and throughout the Old Testament. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. Skip down to 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. Why are you down on on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. You see, he's quoting what he had already made a covenant with them back in Chapter 6, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves, which just means to prepare yourselves, get ready, okay? Uh, Confess, whatever needs to do, get yourself ready. Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. And this is what they do. They, they eventually find that it's Achan who's done this. They start by lining up all the tribes, and God points out which tribe, and then they line up the families of the tribe, and God points out which family, and they line up that family, and they eventually find that Achan is the one who Achan and his household have hidden it. And one of the things that we realize as we read through this is that God is not able to be with Israel when they are actively disobedient. When Israel's actively disobedient, God can't co-sign that loan. They thought that AI would be an easy defeat. But without God, even easy things become insurmountable. And so they then have to deal with Achan's sin. Now what's interesting is that uh, Achan has an opportunity, it looks like, to, to acknowledge what he's done. But he doesn't do it until it's, he's actually caught. And so eventually, once he's called out, he's like, yes, it was me. They're back in my tent. And Achan and his household is stoned to death, which is heavy. I just realized that might not be the perfect choice of words when you talk about somebody being stoned to death. But nonetheless, it was heavy. And 
Achan dies for what he's done. Now, you have to remember, 36 men died because of Achan and his household sin. Uh, 36 sons did not come home to their parents. Some of those men were probably married and fathers, did not come home to their children because of what Achan has done. And it's not just Achan. The reason that it was Achan and his household is actually because uh, there's no way for uh, Achan to have done what he did without his household knowing. And so Achan does it, but his household becomes complicit because uh, they refuse to acknowledge what he's done and come forward and make it right. The saddest part of this entire story, though, is the fact that God had planned to give the spoils of Ai to the Israelites. Uh, Not only Ai, but many of the cities to come. God was absolutely planning to give the spoils of those victories to Achan and the rest of the uh, Israelites. And Achan just simply didn't want to wait. He kind of assumed God maybe was trying to withhold something good rather than believing that God actually had what was good. It just had to be in God's timing. How often do you and I find ourselves in that way too? Like, I don't want to wait because, man, this looks really good. And if I don't get it now, I might not ever get it. When God's like, no, 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 no. Will you trust me? Do you not think I love you even more than you can love yourself? So I think that there's two truths that we need to learn from this text. And then I want to finish by telling you why I think you're so lucky to be alive right now. First truth is this. Our sin never stays hidden. Our sin never stays hidden. Is he sins heavy. And so it breaks through ceilings and falls down on people's heads, especially people's heads that have a beautiful perm and ruins everything. Sin never stays hidden. Uh, the truth is that when my mom quoted uh, Numbers 32, 23 to me, okay, be sure your sin will find you out, uh, that truth is undefeated. That truth has never been proven wrong. Uh, you may think that you're hiding it, but God knows. And you know. There's at least two people in the world that know. And sin rots our souls. It's what sin does. It's caustic to our souls. And our souls are connected to every other part of our being, our relationships, our emotional health, our mental health, our physical health. Sin can't stay hidden because it affects us in every single way imaginable. Uh, have you ever seen a battery that's been sitting in a, uh, in a device for like three or four years? Uh-huh. Alkaline batteries have chemicals inside of them that react to create power. Uh, but what happens when they react is that it actually creates uh, hydrogen gas, and hydrogen gas will kind of build up, and over a number of years, the seal that's supposed to keep the chemicals together often fails. And so it allows uh, that to leak out. And it not just makes the battery impossible to use again, uh, it often ruins the device that it's sitting in. That's the reality. Nobody can hold sin within ourselves and not experience the caustic power of it on our own lives. Which leads us to the second truth. Our sin always affects those around us, especially the people that we love the most. It always affects 
those around us. Uh, way too often we kind of assume like, oh, I can handle it. Like, it's not affecting anybody else. I can manage it. I can keep it hidden. Pretend it's not a big deal. But our sin always seeps beyond us into the people that we love the most. And not only that, but to the generations that come behind us. Um, I've been listening to the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality podcast. Uh, Peter Cesaro, Scazzaro, I never know how to say his last name. It's uh, fantastic. He's written a number of books. He was a pastor in New York City for, I think, like 30 years. Uh, it was only through some really painful, uh, difficult times that he'll say, like, hey, my own uh, discipleship to Jesus was just very adolescent. He's like, God wanted to grow me out of that. And so he's written uh, uh, all these books kind of in the series, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, which is fantastic. And he's put out five uh, podcasts on, on the book Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. I've listened to each one twice already. Just because of how much I'm like, oh my goodness, Lord, I need this. Like, I want this. I want to be like deep in my discipleship to you. One of the things that he talks about, though, is uh, he talks about the, the power of doing a genogram uh, of your family, which is just kind of like a family history. What are the things that are like back there that like maybe your parents or grandparents kind of experienced and how that may kind of affect your family line? And we all get it. We all see it, right? But what we grew up with impacts who we are. We know that. Uh, Cesaro says this. He says, the past may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility to create a good future out of it. Adam uh, mentioned to me, Casper, he's like, it's kind of like playing cards. He's like, you don't always get to choose the hand that you're dealt, but you, you do get to choose how you're going to play the cards. And there's a lot of truth there, but I think that there's even more power in understanding that not only do we come from people, generations, that every single one of us is tainted by some sin, but we do have a responsibility to say, okay, what do I need to do with it? Now, I'm not saying that this is like a pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like, hey, you just got to like understand what it is and then work really hard. Like, look, there are some people that literally have experienced such unbelievable trauma because of the families that they grew up in that honestly, uh, physiologically, they can't move forward on their own. They can only move forward with the help of the Holy Spirit, with the help of really good people that are going to walk alongside of them. Every single one of us is intended to do this life in community. We need all of that, okay? But we do have to take stock and say, what, what do I want to pass on to the generations coming up behind me? Whether you're raising children or whether you're a part of a church where you're serving and engaging, what am I going to do? Which leads me to kind of like the last thing. I want to close by simply talking about why we're so lucky to be alive right now. Ah, uh, a little throw out the Hamilton and GR. Look, uh, Achan and all of Israel, at the time that we're reading this, is under the Mosaic law. Okay, It's the law that God had given to Moses. It was a covenant that God had made with the people. They do what they're supposed to do, and God will hold up his end of the bargain. If they don't, then God will judge them. That's why God says he's angry, because they did not hold up what they said they were going to do. We don't live under the age of law, friends. We're so lucky to be alive right now because we live under the age of grace. When Jesus came, 
lived a sinless life on this earth, and then died on the cross, he took the penalty that you and I deserve. I'll be the first to admit, I've got all kinds of sin in my life. And I'm not saying that past tense, I'm saying it current. Jesus, at his death and resurrection, created a new covenant for us, that when we believe in him by faith, trusting in his death and resurrection for us, we get forgiven. Every single one of us is broken by sin. Every single person in this room has a broken sexuality. Every single person in this room has broken emotions, has broken relationships. Find yourselves being pulled towards selfishness, pride, arrogance, envy, fill in the blank. Every single one of the things that I just mentioned is true of me. But because I don't live under the age of law, rather I live under the age of grace since Christ has come, when I give myself to Jesus, I no longer have to bear the brunt of the penalty of that sin. I think this is the most important question everybody in this room needs to answer today. Have you put your faith in Jesus, believing in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins? That is the most important question that every single person in this room, and look, you don't have to tell me. I don't know if you're faking it or not. We had a phenomenal testimony in the 9 a.m. service with Alex, who shared what God had been doing in his life and how he grew up in the church, but quite honestly saw Jesus as like a six-inch action figure that he would take out and play with when he wanted, but he could put him away and wasn't even sure how real he was. And he walked away and said, I was a prodigal through the end of high school and mostly through college. And then all of a sudden, God began to do a work in my life. And I began to realize that it's not just something that I talk about, not something that I play with. Jesus wants all of me. And he said, so I committed my life to Jesus. And today I'm getting baptized to show that it's real and that God is doing a work. Man, it was powerful. And friends, I'm just telling you, how you answer that question today. And here's the reality. Everybody answers that question at some point. Every single one of us will have to stand before God at some point and answer that question. There is no more important thing here. Uh, how we answer that question, what that's called is a theological term called justification, okay? It's kind of a legal term. It means that God declares you to be uh, free of sin, okay? Brings you into his family. So that's kind of what happens when we give our lives to Jesus. God declares us to be righteous, to be a part of his family. But there's another part that is really important. It's another theological word called sanctification. That's the hard work of becoming like Jesus. Sanctification is the work of digging. Just like they had to go into Achan's tent and dig up the devoted things and take them out and deal with them. Sanctification is the work that you and I have of digging. Now, it doesn't mean that God hasn't brought us into his family. Okay, When we accept Christ, that's God bringing us into his family. But there's still work that we have to do. If you thought becoming a Christian meant that you were getting out of work for the rest of your life, you're very mistaken. All right, Following Jesus is hard work, but it's good work, and we don't do it alone. So how do we dig these things up? We dig them up first and foremost by confessing them to God. God knows already. The work of digging is simply to say, God, you know this already. I'm acknowledging it. 
I've got some crap in my life, and I need you to help me get rid of it. I need to acknowledge it. I need to confess it. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know what kind of a family you grew up in. I grew up in a pretty good family, but my family wasn't perfect. I mean, I think my, my grandpa on my dad's side was a really nice guy, but also, like, he was kind of a, a hail and brimstone kind of a preacher. And I think my dad often thought that God was, like, just waiting to hit him. Kind of distant and angry. And I knew better. I still know better. But way too often, I kind of think God's kind of like that. Like, oh, yeah, you, you're going to bring something to me? Good. Now, ugh, I can get you. And what I have been having to relearn and retrain my heart and my brain, which so desperately wants to believe that this is truly what God is like, is that that is not the God of the Bible. Rather, the God of the Bible is actually one who loves me so much that he was willing to give his own son Jesus to die in my place. And that same God, his favorite thing to do is to forgive. Uh, Dane Ortland wrote a book. It's called Gentle and Lowly, which is like the worst title ever. Like no dude wants to read a book called Gentle and Lowly, okay? And then even worse, the cover is like a little like lamb in like a like green field. You're like, come on, bro. But this book has been rocking me. He says this, he says, when you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of Jesus' own deepest wishes, not against them. To put it the other way around, when we hold back, lurking in the shadows, fearful and failing, we miss out not only on our own increased comfort, but on Christ's increased comfort. He lives for this. This is what he loves to do. His joy and ours rise and fall together. Uh, author John Bunyan, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, he understands this. And so he wrote, um, Ortland kind of rewrote it a little bit for modern ears, but a conversation between me and Jesus. Read it along. No wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand I've really messed up, like in all kinds of ways. I know, Jesus responds. You know most of it, sure. Uh, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside of me that's hidden from everybody. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it's not just my past, Jesus. It's my present, too. I understand. Jesus, but I, but I don't know if I can break free from this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy, though, and it's getting heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear, Jesus. Not for me. You don't, you don't get it, though. My offenses aren't only directed towards others. They're directed towards you as well. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. And then Ortland quotes John 6, 37. 
And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Uh, Famous Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin uh, said this, I love it, Christ is love covered over in flesh. The Father's greatest joy is to forgive his children. If my son was starving for oxygen and I had an oxygen tank, do you think that I would ask him to suck gently on the oxygen? Or would I open it full blast to give him whatever he needs? How much more do you think your Father in heaven who loves you and gave you Jesus, will not give you everything else that you need. It is his joy to help us do the digging work in our lives. The second thing that we have to do is confess our sins to people who can help us. So first we come to God and we acknowledge what's sitting, what's lurking deep within. And then we, we go to others, people that we know and love and can trust And we confess it to them, people that can help us, pastors, godly friends, maybe an older Christian you trust, could be your spouse, could be your parents. And then lastly, we remove those things from the camp. We dig them up and we take them out when we work with the Holy Spirit and those godly friends to get the help that we need, okay? The help that we need to get healthy and when necessary to make restitution. And friends, I'm on this journey with you. I'm not somebody who says, oh, I figured it all out and this is what you need to do now. I'm right in the middle of it. I have and will continue to need to confess my sin to God. And I have and will continue to need people in my life that I know love me, that I can trust, that I can confess my sin to. And that can help me get the kind of help. And I have and will need people that will be able to offer me the kind of help that I need. I've seen counselors in the past I'm in the process of looking for a counselor right now to work through some things that I know I need to work through. I'm not ashamed to admit it or talk about it. If you're looking for a church where the pastor is perfect and has everything together, uh, I can't really help you personally. And uh, I know a lot of other pastors, and so I wouldn't recommend their churches either. I simply want you to know that this is a journey that we all have to take together. And that's why we need one another. And we're not going to be afraid to say that we need help. Some of us, the ground is fairly easy to dig up. And others of us, man, that ground has gotten rock solid over the years. And maybe you're not even sure if it's possible to break through. I'm here to tell you, I have both of those kinds of ground in my life. And God is continuing to break that up gently. I'm not telling you it's easy. I'm not telling you it's painless, but I am telling you God wants to meet us there. That's the story of Achan and Ai. That's the story of Jesus dying for us. That's the truth of God as Father. And that's what I desire for you more than anything else. The reason that I'm still working at it at 47 years old and won't stop until the day that I die is because God's worth it. And my wife is worth it. And my children are worth it. And my friends and this church are worth it. And the generations that are going to come up behind me, they're worth it. It's worth the work. 
It's worth the pain. And it's what I desire for our entire church. It's why we will always be a church that is big on grace. God meets us there, and His grace is so bountiful beyond anything you could imagine. It's why we will always be a church that's not afraid to talk about God's love. God's love is bountiful, greater than you could ever believe. We're going to sing a couple of songs. And there are some of you that have some work to do. The Holy Spirit's moving in your heart, and you know it. And this might be a time of confession. And so our prayer team's going to be down front. They would love to pray with you. They'll kind of be off on the sides. I'll be up here too. If you just need to do some business with God, you can come down front, pray, just spend time with him. There's no shame in it. You don't have to worry about anybody wondering if you're a sinner. I'll let you in on a little secret. You are. And so are they. We're all in this together. Father God, Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you can bear any burden we have. There is no sin that is so deep we can't dig it out. No soil that is so hard that we can't break through it. Jesus, we recognize that we need others to help us with that. We need your spirit to do work. And so today we just humble ourselves and say, God, whatever it's going to take, we're in. And God, if there's somebody that today just needs to maybe for the first time give their life to you, God, that, answer that question. God, let them make that choice, that decision today to say, I'm in. Holy Spirit, we give you permission in these next couple of songs to just work, work and heal. In Jesus' name.